Chapter 9 of Kitchener's Mob by James Norman Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Kitchener's Mob by James Norman Hall. Chapter 9 Billets. Cave life had its alleviations, and chief among these was the pleasure of anticipating a week in reserve. We could look forward to this with certainty. During the long stalemate on the western front, British military organization has been perfected until in times of quiet it works with the monotonous smoothness of a machine. Even during periods of prolonged and heavy fighting, there is but little confusion. Only twice during six months of campaigning did we fail to receive our daily post of letters and parcels from England, and then we were told the delay was due to mine-sweeping in the channel. With every detail of military routine carefully thought out, and every possible emergency provided for in advance, we lived as methodically in the firing line as we had during our months of training in England. The movements of troops in and out of the trenches were excellently arranged and timed. The outgoing battalion was prepared to move back as soon as the relief had taken place, the trench-water cans had been filled, an act of courtesy between battalions, the dugouts thoroughly cleaned, and the refuse buried. The process of taking over was a very brief one. The sentries of the incoming battalion were posted, and listening patrols sent out to relieve those of the outgoing battalion, which then moved down the communications trenches, the men happy in the prospect of a night of undisturbed sleep. Second only to sleep in importance was the fortnightly bath. Sometimes we cleaned ourselves, as best we could, in muddy little duck-ponds, populous with frogs and green with scum. But, oh, the joy when our march ended at a military bathhouse! The government had provided these whenever possible, and for several weeks we were within marching distance of one. There we received a fresh change of underclothing, and our uniforms were fumigated, while we splashed and scrubbed in great vats of clean, warm water. The order, everybody out! was obeyed with great reluctance, and usually not until the bath attendants of the Army Service Corps enforced it with the cold water hose. Tommy, who has a song for every important ceremonial, never sang Rule Britannia with the enthusiasm which marked his rendition of the following chorus. Whiter than the whitewash on the wall, whiter than the whitewash on the wall, if you're leading us to slaughter, leave us our soap and water first. Then we'll be whiter than the whitewash on the wall. When out of the firing line, we washed and mended our clothing and scraped a week's accumulation of mud from our uniforms. Before breakfast, we were inflicted with the old punishment, Swedish drill. Got strafe Sweden, Tommy would say, as he puffed and perspired under a hot August sun. But he was really glad that he had no choice but to submit. In the trenches there was little opportunity for vigorous exercise, and our arms and legs became stiff with the long inactivity. Throughout the mornings we were busy with a multitude of duties. Arms and equipment were cleaned and inspected, machine guns thoroughly overhauled, gas helmets sprayed, and there was frequent instruction in bomb-throwing and bayonet fighting in preparation for the day to which every soldier looks forward with some misgiving, but with increasing confidence the day when the enemy shall be driven out of France. 
Classes in grenade fighting were under the supervision of officers of the Royal Engineers. In the early days of the war, there was but one grenade in use, and that a crude affair made by the soldiers themselves. An empty jam tin was filled with explosive and scrap iron, and tightly bound with wire. A fuse was attached, and the bomb was ready for use. But England early anticipated the importance which grenade fighting was to play in trench warfare. Her experts in explosives were set to work, and by the time we were ready for active service, ten or a dozen variety of bombs were in use, all of them made in the munition factories in England. The hairbrush, the lemon bomb, the cricket ball, and the policeman's truncheon were the most important of these, all of them so-called because of their resemblance to the articles for which they were named. The first three were exploded by a time fuse set from three to five seconds. The fourth was a percussion bomb, which had long cloth streamers fastened to the handle to ensure greater accuracy in throwing. The men became remarkably accurate at a distance of thirty to forty yards. Old cricketers were especially good, for the bomb must be thrown overhand with a full arm movement. Instruction in bayonet fighting was made as realistic as possible. Upon a given signal, we rushed forward, jumping in and out of successive lines of trenches, where dummy figures clad in the uniforms of German foot soldiers, to give zest to the game, took our blades both front and rear with conciliatory indifference. In the afternoon, Tommy's time was his own. He could sleep or wander along the country roads, within a prescribed area or, which was more often the case, indulge in those games of chance which were as the breath of life to him. Payday was the event of the week in billets, because it gave him the wherewithal to satisfy the promptings of his sporting blood. Our fortnightly allowance of from five to ten francs was not a princely sum, but in pennies and half-pennies it was quite enough to provide many hours of absorbing amusement. Tommy gambled because he could not help it. When he had no money, he wagered his allowance of cigarettes or his share of the daily jam ration. I believe that the appeal which war made to him was largely one of his sporting instincts. Life and death were playing stakes for his soul, with the betting odds about even. The most interesting feature of our life in billets was the contact which it gave us with the civilian population, who remained in the war zone, either because they had no place else to go, or because of that indomitable, unconquerable spirit which is characteristic of the French. There are few British soldiers along the western front who do not have memories of the heroic mothers who clung to the ruined homes as long as there was a wall standing. It was one of those who summed it up for me in five words, all the heart-breaking tragedy of war. She kept a little shop in Armitiers on one of the streets leading to the firing line. We often stopped there when going up to the trenches to buy loaves of delicious French bread. She had candles for sale as well, and chocolates and packets of stationery. Her stock was exhausted daily, and in some way replenished daily. I think she made long journeys to the other side of the town, bringing back fresh supplies in a pushcart which stood outside her door. Her cottage, which was less than a mile from our first-line trenches, was partially in ruins. I couldn't understand her being there in such danger. Evidently it was with the consent of the military authorities. There were other women living on the same street, but somehow she was different from the others. 
There was a spiritual fineness about her which impressed one at once. Her eyes were dry as though the tears had been drained from them to the last drop, long ago. One day, calling for a packet of candles, I found her standing at the barricaded window, which looks towards the trenches, and the desolate towns and villages back of the German lines. My curiosity got the better of my courtesy, and I asked her, in my poor French, why she was living there. She was silent for a moment, and then she pointed toward that part of France which was on the other side of the world to us. Monsieur mes enfants la brasse. Her children were over there, or had been at the outbreak of the war. That is all she had told me of her story, and I would have been a beast to have asked more. In some way she had become separated from them, and for nearly a year she had been watching there, not knowing whether her little family was living or dead. To many of the soldiers she was just a plain, thrifty little Frenchwoman, who knew not the meaning of fear, willing to risk her life daily, that she might put by something for the long, hard years which would follow the war. To me she is the spirit of France, splendid, superb France. But more than that she is the spirit of mother-love, which wars can never alter. Strangely enough, I had not thought of the firing line as a boundary, a limit, during all those weeks of trench warfare. Henceforth it had a new meaning for me. I realized how completely it cut Europe in half, separating friends and relatives as thousands of miles of ocean could not have done. Roads crossed from one side to the other, but they were barricaded with sandbags and barbed-wire entanglements. At night they were deluged with shrapnel and cobblestones were chipped and scarred with machine-gun bullets. Tommy had a ready sympathy for the woman and children who lived near the trenches. I remember many incidents which illustrate abundantly his quick understanding of the hardship and danger of their lives. Once at Armatiers we were marching to the baths when the German artillery were shelling the town in the usual hit-or-miss fashion. The enemy knew, of course, that many of our troops in reserve were billeted there, and they searched for them daily. Doubtless they would have destroyed the town long ago had it not been for the fact that Lally, one of their most important bases, is within such easy range of our batteries. As it was, they bombarded it as heavily as they dared, and on this particular morning they were sending them over too frequently for comfort. Some of the shells were exploding close to our line of march, but the boys tramped along with that nonchalant air which they assume in times of danger. One immense shell struck an empty house less than a block away and sent the masonry flying in every direction. The cloud of brick dust shone like gold in the sun. A moment later a fleshy peasant woman wearing wooden shoes turned out of an adjoining street and ran awkwardly towards the scene of the explosion. Her movements were so clumsy and slow in proportion to the great exertion she was making that at any time the sight would have been ludicrous. Now it was inevitable that such a sight should first appeal to Tommy's sense of humor, and thoughtlessly the boy started laughing and shouting at her. "'Go it, old dear! You're making a grand race! Two to one on Lisa! The other way, Ma! That's the wrong direction! You're running right into em. She gave no heed, and a moment later we saw her gather up a little girl from a doorstep, hugging and comforting her, and shielding her with her body, instinctively, at the sound of another exploding shell. 
The laughter in the ranks stopped, as though every man had been suddenly struck dumb. They were courageous, those women in the firing line. Their thoughts were always for their husbands and sons and brothers who were fighting side by side with us. Meanwhile, they kept their little shops and estaments open for the soldiers' trade and made a brave show of living in the old way. In Armentieres a few old men lent their aid to keeping up the pretense, but the feeble trickle of civilian life made scarcely an impression in the broad current of military activity. A solitary postman, with a mere handful of letters, made his morning rounds of echoing streets, and bent old men with newspapers hobbled slowly along the rue Sadi Carant, shouting, Le Martin, Le Journal, to boarded windows and bolted doors. Meanwhile, we marched back and forth between billets in the town and trenches just outside. And the last thing which we saw upon leaving the town, and the first upon returning, was the lengthening row of new-made graves, close to a sunny wall in the garden, of the ruined convent. It was a pathetic little burial-pot, filled with the bodies of women and children, who had been killed in German bombardments of the town. And thus, for more than three months, while we were waiting for Fritzie to come out, we adapted ourselves to the changing conditions of trench life and trench warfare, with a readiness which surprised and gratified us. Our very practical training in England had prepared us in a measure for simple and primitive living, but even with such preparation we had constantly to revise downward our standards. We lived without comforts which formerly we had regarded as absolutely essential. We lived a life so crude and rough that our army experiences in England seemed utopian by comparison. But we throve splendidly. A government paternalistic in its solicitude for our welfare had schooled our bodies to withstand hardships and to endure privations. In England we had been inoculated and vaccinated whether we would or no and the result was that fevers were practically non-existent in the trenches. What little sickness there was was due to inclement weather rather than to unsanitary conditions. Although there were sad gaps in our ranks, the trench and camp fevers prevalent in other wars were not responsible for them. Bullets, shells, and bombs took their toll day by day, but so gradually that we had been given time to forget that we had ever known the security of civilian life. We were soon to experience the indescribable horrors of modern warfare, at its worst, to be living from morning until evening and from dusk to dawn, looking upon a new day with a feeling of wonder that we had survived so long. About the middle of September it became clear to us that the big drive was at hand. There was increased artillery activity along the entire front. The men noted with great satisfaction that the shells from our own batteries were of larger caliber. This was a welcome indication that England was at last meeting the long-felt need for high explosives. Lord George ain't been asleep, some unshaven seer would say, nodding his head wisely. He's a long while getting ready, but when he is ready, there's something a-going to drop. There was a feeling of excitement everywhere. The men looked to their rifles with greater interest. They examined more carefully their bandoliers of ammunition and their gas helmets, and they were thoughtful about keeping their metal pocket mirrors and their cigarette cases in their left-hand breast pockets. 
for any Tommy can tell you of miraculous escapes from death due to such a protective armoring over the heart. The thunder of the guns increased with every passing day. The fire appeared to be evenly distributed over many miles of frontage. In moments of comparative quiet along our sector, we could hear them muttering and rumbling miles away to our right and left. We awaited developments with the greatest impatience, for we knew that this general bombardment was but a preliminary one for the purpose of concealing until the last moment the plan of attack, the portion of the front where the great artillery concentration would be made, and the infantry assault pushed home. Then came sudden orders to move. Within twenty-four hours the roads were filled with the incoming troops of a new division. We made a rapid march to a railhead entrained, and were soon moving southward by an indirect route, southward, towards the sound of the guns, to take an inconspicuous part in the battle at Luz. End of chapter 9